0: You're listening to Intelligence Squared. Today we're speaking to Yale professor and author Paul Bloom about the sweet spot of pain, pleasure and suffering. Here's economist and broadcaster Linda Yu with more.
1: Thank you all for joining us, and I'm delighted to welcome Yale professor Paul Bloom, who's here to discuss his fantastic new book, The Sweet Spot. We'll be discussing finding the sweet spot of pain, pleasure, and suffering. He is the Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor of Psychology and Cognitive Science at Yale University. In this book, Paul addresses questions such as, why do some people like horror movies? Does unchosen suffering, say the death of a child, make us more resilient? What will doubling your salary do to your happiness? And why do we so often seek out pain and emotional turmoil? And there's many more such questions in this book. Welcome, Paul. So first, let me just ask you, what is the sweet spot?
2: (laughs) And why did you want to write about
1: it in this book?
2: Thanks, Linda. It's great to be talking with you. I, I got into this book because I was interested in certain puzzles, strange appetites people have. You know, we like spicy foods or hot baths. Some of us go to scary movies. Some of us listen to songs that make us weep. Some people enjoy BDSM. Everybody enjoys some sort of pain. And I was really interested in, in why. And, uh, and so I was going to write a book on that called the pleasures of suffering or pleasures of pain. But as I wrote it and started to write and started to read what other people were talking about, I realized that there's another reason why we seek out suffering and pain and difficulty that's not for the purpose of pleasure, but for higher goals like leading a meaningful life or, connection, or spiritual reasons or moral reasons. And my book says a lot of things, but one of the things is a defense of what I could call motivational pluralism, which is humans have many, many different appetites. And one of the projects of being a person then is figuring out how to put them in the right balance And to find a sweet spot between pleasure and meaning and morality. And that's kind of how the book got the title. It also just seemed like a a nice, nice, I I, I like the phrase, it seems to come up over and over again.
1: You almost chose the book title, The Pleasures of Suffering, but why did you decide otherwise? Perhaps book sales? (laughs) I I like
2: The Pleasures (laughs) of Suffering. The problem with it was um, it was incomplete. So it's true, a lot of the suffering we do is for the purpose of, um, of pleasure. That's what BDSM is all about. It's, just, it's people enjoy. That's what people go to, go to scary movies. They enjoy just find it. Find
1: BDSM fun. for us. Oh, too. I'm
2: sorry. I'm sorry. And there may be a, 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 sort of language difference here. Um, it's sadomasochistic behavior, sadomasochistic sex. It includes everything from heavy duty sadomasochism to experience a real pain, but it also includes, um, reading a book like Fifty Shades of Grey. Or watching what, like Fifty Shades of Grey, where you enjoy it vicariously, and so that was that. So, and that's all pleasure. But then I started thinking about other things like um, training for a marathon, or uh, starting a business, writing a book, raising children. I find raising children is for me a wonderful example of something which people do. They usually don't regret it. They say it's of tremendous significance, but it's hard. It involves anxiety and struggle and difficulty. People know it's going to be hard. And I think the difficulty is part and parcel why it's so valuable. But I wouldn't call that pleasure in any simple sense.
1: Mm -hmm. And you write that the idea we hope to make it through life unscathed is not quite complete as a theory of a good life. So in the book, you write that under the right circumstances and in the right doses, physical and emotional pain, difficulty, failure and loss are exactly what we're looking for. So tell me why you write that nobody is immune to the lure of suffering. So
2: the last part is, is, is an empirical observation of the world. I've never met somebody who one way or another didn't seek out pain. Yeah. And, and it differs. Your, your mileage may vary. Some people like to run. Others like to go to movies that, that, that make them scream, that just terrify them, very upsetting. Some like to indulge in, in masochistic fantasies of what happens when their life goes badly. Some people, you know, train for, for, difficult physical pursuits, they go on long, they, they travel to difficult places, they go They go camping, you know, giving up hot showers and everything. And for all of these things that people say, yeah, I know it hurts. I know this is going to be hard. But that's part and parcel of what makes it important.
1: And you write about two forms of chosen suffering. So you mentioned there the experience of a marathon that gives pleasure. And secondly, the part that is also, um, I think, probably not discussed as much is that something like a marathon could be part of a life well lived. So just tell me about the importance of chosen suffering for for something like that. That's right. And that's an,
2: it's an important thing to, to talk about right away. I wrote um, in the Wall Street Journal a summary of my book a couple of weeks back. And right away, I got a very angry letter from somebody who says, I live my whole life in chronic pain. It's a terrible thing. Who are you to tell me this is valuable? What do you know? And I pointed out, you're right. I'm not saying that bad stuff that happens to you is something we should welcome. Chronic pain, the death of a child, um, uh, a violent assault. That's bad stuff which happens to people. And I think we could talk about how resilient people are and the stories people tell. But that's not what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing for the suffering we choose and the suffering we choose could come in roughly two flavors, though there's cases which sort of overlap. So one flavor is we really seek out the suffering. We seek out the pain. You know. So so I'm going to eat some really spicy food. And I know it's hot. I know it's going to burn my mouth and make me sweat and make me gasp, but I like it. I'm going to go to a hot bath that's really going to fry me up, a uh, sauna or whatever. And, but we see a payoff at the end. We see some pleasure at the end. So that's one sort. A second sort is a bit more complicated. You, somebody might say, look, I want to train for a marathon. I'm out of shape. I want to train for a marathon. When you say that, you don't, you're not looking forward to blisters. You're not looking forward to muscle aches and disappointment and maybe failure. But if, if you didn't know it was difficult, if it wasn't hard, it would have no value to you. So, we, so it's, not that, it's not that we say, I want to do really unpleasant, difficult experiences. Rather, some of the time it's, I want to do things which are meaningful and important. And I know those involve difficult experiences.
1: So tell me more about benign masochism, a term that you use in the book.
2: It's a lovely, lovely term thought up by Paul Rosen. And he, the benign part is important. These are not cases where people mutilate themselves or give themselves excruciating agony. It's little things. It's, you know, you have a, a sprained ankle and you press on it a bit. You, you have a sore tooth and you poke it with your tongue. Um, you, you listen to a song. There's a really sad song and you're kind of in a bad one. You listen to it. Adele always does it for me and you kind of get a little bit of sadness. You, you, you sulk. You, you, you nurture old worlds. You, through choice, you put yourself in a bad space, either physically or emotionally. A large part of my book, the sort of first half says, what's up with this? Why are we doing this? And I think there's different explanations. Uh, one of which is contrast. This is the simplest one which is sometimes we play with pain to give ourselves greater pleasure in the future. You might put some really spicy foods in your mouth and then you drink some cool beer and you feel great. You might go into a hot sauna, then dive into a cool lake. You might see a movie where all these terrible things happen, but then the hero gets revenge at the end and all is good. And so we play with contrast. So that's one thing going on in benign masochism. Another thing, just to put it on the table, is... um that we, we, um, we like to sometimes escape from ourselves, escape from our consciousness. Sometimes being a person with our self-consciousness and our, our guilt and our shame and our worries and what is oppressive, certain sharp experiences pull us away from this. You know, I tell in my book the first time I ever did a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and I was a sparring, I was rolling with somebody and this person was much stronger and much younger than me, like everyone else in the gym. And for three minutes, he basically repeatedly tried to pull my head off of my body and twist my arms off. And in some way, it was painful and difficult and kind of scary. But I realized afterwards that during that time, I thought of nothing else. My mind was clear. I wasn't thinking, how am I looking? I hope my kids are okay. And some things like BDSM, uh, sorry, sadomasochism, rigorous exercise, intense focus will do that. You'll lose yourself. And there's a lot of, to be said about that. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to explore some of this uh, in our discussion uh, about the story of the Twilight Zone episode that captures this idea that <laughs> this uh, omnipotence is boring.
2: Yeah, this is a, this, I, I saw this when I was, when I was a kid, at original Twilight Zone. And, the, the sto- and I think there's a real wisdom in it. The story is there's a terrible mobster and he dies. And he wakes up and he's in a lovely hotel room. You know, beautiful view of the river, and and he discovers, and he has a, an angel guide, and a, the guide says, "You can do whatever you want." And the guy says, "Wow, I didn't expect this when I died. I thought I was a bad person." And says, so, "Yeah." So he gets all the sex he wants, and the power, and he buys stuff, and everything comes to him easy. He plays poker with his buddies and wins everything again and again and again, and he starts to go crazy, and and he starts and he says, I, I, "This is this is." This is horrible. And he finally says to the guide, I have enough of heaven. I want to go to the other place. And the guide says, why do you think this is heaven? This is the other place. And one version of hell would be you get what you want all the time. And it would strip every activity of joy. And it's complicated. You and I decide to play poker together. I'm looking forward to it. And I don't want to lose. I want to win. You want to win. But, if we knew we were going to win, we wouldn't even bother playing. Too boring. The idea of risk and anxiety and a possibility of loss is just integral to these sort of activities.
1: Mm. So tell me about how the brain grades on a curve. So, and that means the secret to happiness may be unhappiness, as you set out in your book.
2: So this goes back to the idea of contrast. We don't process experiences in terms of absolutes, you know, the temperature water feels like when you stick your hand into that depends a lot on what the air temperature air is and what temperature it used to be, you know, something. And, and it's the same with, with experiences like pain and pleasure. So something and there's, they've done laboratory experiments and it's something that's kind of mildly unpleasant. If you were expecting it to be much worse, could actually feel pleasant. And it's true more abstractly. You lose $10 in a game and that's pretty bad. But if you thought you're going to lose $100, that's good news. And so we play with contrast. And one of the ways we play with this is if you have some negative experiences and then you have sort of a neutral experience coming right afterwards, the neutral gets boost, boosted by the comparison with the negative. Uh, and and I think we play with this a lot in, in sort of Putting ourselves in mild painful experiences or difficult experiences for the release. It all breaks down to the silly joke my dad told me when I was a kid about the guy who bangs his head against the wall and she said, Why are you doing that? And he says, It feels so good when I stop. And, you know, it's a dumb joke, but to some extent some of that some we, we do some of this in our everyday life. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that go on, for instance, when we choose to go for a lengthy hike or um or, or camping, there's a feeling of mastery, there's connection with nature. But also, there's the fact that when it's over, we feel so good. And we look back and say, look what I did. Thank goodness this is in the past, but look what I did. I feel great about it.
1: Mm. So staying on the theme of happiness, for experienced happiness, you cite a study that shows that money matters only up to about $89,000. So that's about 66,000 pounds. But when it comes to life satisfaction, there's no leveling off. So tell me about this contrast.
2: Yeah. um, This is some work by uh, Danny Kahneman, brilliant psychologist who, who won the Nobel Prize for it. And he points out that when we talk about happiness, everybody says, I want to be happy. But- Happiness means at least to one of two things. One thing is your experienced happiness. Like, so every, you know, I give you an, a, an iPhone app and then it beeps every um, every once in a while. And then when it beeps, you say how happy you are. And like, oh, I'm eight out of 10. I'm seven out of 10. I'm nine out of 10. And then I could figure out how happy you are on average for your whole life. And that's your experienced happiness. Another way though, is I could ask you, Linda, how happy are you? Just take a few minutes and think. A scale of one to ten or how good is your life? Give me the answer. Just think about things. And these answers correlate, but they're kind of different. One answer is your day-to-day pleasures, the first one. The second answer is your contemplative feeling about how well your life is going. And and we could argue, and I think that's a very good argument to have which one should we try to maximize. But there's been studies about the relationship of money to these. And the argument is that day-to-day pleasures. Money, putting really money makes people happier. It's, 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 you know, if anybody ever told you the, the opposite, they're wrong. Money is a great predictor of happiness of any sort. Ha- richer people are happier than poorer people. Richer countries are, have happier citizens than poorer countries, and it's not a surprise. Money buys you, you know, health, access to healthcare, it buys you safety, it buys you uh, good schooling for your kids, freedom from exploitation, time with your friends, and you know, cool stuff. But for experience, it kind of, at a certain point, it doesn't matter if you have more. The, the original study said about 80,000 American dollars. It's done a little while ago. Let's say, you know, uh, 100,000 pounds or something. Um, but for your, but for your, your uh, re- reflective, remembered happiness, the sky's the limit. There's diminishing returns. And so you wonder what's the difference? And one answer is status. So if I say, Linda, how's your life going? One of the things you first think, like, okay, am I well fed? Am I safe? Am I sick? How are people I love doing? But then you also say, how am I doing relative to everybody else? And if you say I'm making a lot more money than this guy I'm talking to, that's pretty good. And then that boosts up your happiness. To sort of, we get very status oriented and comparative.
1: It's absolutely fascinating. Um, the uh, I think there's quite a lot of. Uh... Uh, happiness as a relative concept, you know, keeping up with the Joneses tends to make you a bit unhappy. And so I can see questions beginning to come in. Please do uh, continue to submit them and uh, we will get to those uh, very shortly. But before we do, um, Paul, I want to um, talk to you about meaning. So before we go into some of the concepts in your book, I just have one question for you. Um, Is it the case that everyone over the age of 40 has a midlife crisis?
2: No, I wouldn't <laughs> think so. Why? Why do you ask? So have meaning. Have people been talking about me?
1: The, well, when people talk about uh, meaning, I think that's, um, you know, when you start thinking about those questions. Yes. So I think that's where um, uh, that occurred to me. So you relay a study in the book where people were asked, are you a giver or a taker? Yeah. Givers have more meaning in their lives, but takers have more happiness. So what yes. do the responses yes. mean? It's
2: really interesting. And it goes back to the idea of pluralism, that there's more than one way to, to live your life. There's more than one thing to focus on. And some of it, you know, I don't want to be be too glib about answering your midlife crisis question. Um, David Brooks has a very interesting book called The Second Mountain, where he points out for a lot of people, and this is not cross-cultural, this is kind of a something, in, you know, in, in, in Western countries. but and, and I think there's just a group of, of people there. But... Sometimes people say they they strive for 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 pleasures for happiness, then they get to a certain point and they say, "Well, okay, let me go for something deeper now, something more uh, you know you go from uh, the sort of virtues that you'd want on your c b on your resume to the virtues you want in your eulogy when you know when you're dead and people talking to you um and to get a sense of this of, of the different priorities people have. There's a lovely study by Roy Baumeister and his colleagues. And what they did was they asked people a bunch of different questions. And one question they asked people was like, how happy are you? Standard question. Other question is, how much meaning do you have in your life? How, you know, how meaningful is your life? Now, one th- thing I always have to stress here is these answers are correlated. So you have a lot of people which are high in one and zero in the other. But they tend to go together. So if you tell me you have a meaningful life, you can also have a happy life. Well, now let's look at people who go for one versus the other. And you're exactly right. People, there's a different profile. H- happiness is associated with good health, with money, and, um, and associated with a relatively easy life. Low stress, low anxiety, low difficulty. Meaning is less associated with happiness, less associated with money. In some studies, negatively associated with money. And also associated with difficulty and struggle and and interacting with people and maybe helping people, but it's hard. And this shows up all over the place. There was a study of 2 million people looking at the jobs they, they had and asking, how meaningful is your job? And it turns out the jobs that are most meaningful, number one, was being a member of the clergy, being a minister or a priest or rabbi, or whatever, social worker, educator, being a member of the military, medical professional, And a lot of these jobs on the top of the list, most meaningful, they don't pay well, they're low status, and they're tough. But they're meaningful. And there's a lot of other jobs which I think have a lot of pleasure, give you a lot of money, but they do lack meaning.
1: And. You write about suffering as um, a part of meaning in the book. So you talk about the movie, The Matrix. I have to say, I've watched The Matrix. I am the computer designed world. Um, tell us that story and why that captures this so well for you. Because after reading your book, I now get that scene.
2: <laughs> well, I, I tell a story. I tell an origin story uh, that was told in The Matrix. If you haven't, if you haven't seen the movie, just skip over this part. But, um, but. Where Agent Smith is explaining to um, to I think Neo. to Morpheus, oh Morpheus, um, and, that's right, and I think it's Morpheus how the world came to be, and and because the idea is the world is is you know a a, a computer simulation that most of us live in. This story animation, the classic, the classic philosophical s- story that, that 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 they they drew from. He said, "We once tried to make you a paradise that every need was satisfied, and it um and it broke." You you didn't survive. You need suffering and pain. You need struggle, or else it doesn't work. And I like the Matrix story. Can I tell one other quick story? It's 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 not, it's not from me. It's from Alan Watts, the guy who brought a Zen to the West. And he tells this story of um you go to sleep and you find yourself having a lucid dream. You could dream whatever you want. It says for ninety years, ninety years of experience, whatever you want. And he said, You would have the best time ever sex and love and adventure and great food and parties and everything like that. And then you you wake up, you live your day and you go to sleep again. And there again, you have another, you know, 90 years. He says, you wouldn't do the same thing over again. You say, well, let's make things difficult. Let's throw some, some failure. Let's, let's do it. Sometimes you try something, you lose. Sometimes you think it's easy. It's going to be hard. You wouldn't struggle and difficulty and complexity. And then the punchline is he says, maybe this is the world you're living now. That this world that, that, that contains all of these. You think you may want the first world, but this is the world you want and this is the world you have.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great story that you have in the book. In fact, you have so many great stories in the book. I'm, I'm glad um, that you we're able to discuss that one. You also have some fantastic quotes. And I'm going to quote your book where you quote U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts' speech where he says, um, and this is his commencement speech at graduation um, at a university. So he, he in his speech, he, he said, I wish you bad luck, again, from time to time, so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. So tell me about this quote. and I, And I think in your chapter on, on suffering, um, you, make a, you do make a distinction between the chosen suffering um, that we discussed before. So, be great to come back to that and, and yeah. think about um, the speech and, and um, what we've been discussing.
2: I think you're, you're right. I think there's a great big difference between the theme of my book, which is the suffering we choose and how this gives both pleasure and meaning. And bad stuff that happens to us. The stuff that John Roberts is talking about. And I quote him. And I quote him with respect. It's a nice summary of an idea. I'm not sure he's right. I'm not sure. There's some data suggesting that people who have experienced no suffering at all, no bad things ever happened to them. Sometimes sometimes people make it to the age of 30, 40, and they're unscathed. They've never been assaulted. Nobody they, they love has died. They've never had a mass, a failure of any sort. And those people, there's some evidence that they have low pain tolerance, that they tend to catastrophize, that they're less kind, and that that some suffering is needed to get through the world. But I don't think you need that much. And I think the idea that uh, Nietzsche, the famous Nietzsche quote, uh, "What doesn't kill us makes us stronger," is one of the stupidest things a smart philosopher ever said. Because sometimes what doesn't kill us really messes us up. You know, it could, it could give us PTSD, it could traumatize us, it could make us meaner and harder. I don't, I think, I just think that life is full of suffering enough and the claim that, oh, you all need more. I, I actually don't, don't buy it. And I think there's part of it which is actually cruel in a sense that if you tell me something bad has happened to you, I'm not sure I want to come back and say, such an opportunity for growth. You're so lucky. This bad thing is happening. This will make you better. I think a more realistic response is to remind you that most people are really resilient. Most people are resilience is the rules. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's the exception. You, you will get over this. But I don't have to tell you. You better improve. Most people don't. Most people get over. It. Most people survive.
1: Mm-hmm. You also quote Shakespeare. You really do have such a wide range in the book, Paul. I've just gone from John Roberts to Shakespeare. You quote Shakespeare in your book. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So you give that quote in the context of saying there's something even greater in terms of a greater truth about the good life. So tell me what that is.
2: I like that quote because it applies to many things. I think it particularly applies to um, what we were talking about before, about contrast and benign masochism. So, you know, imagine you, all of your heart is pounding. You can't breathe. You're soaked with sweat.
0: Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things. And it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com/squared. Ah, mm,
2: the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year. Now by going to Caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for $10 off your first purchase, get $10 off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at Caskers.com. Is that a good experience or a bad experience? Well, if it's happening to you right now, it'd be a bad experience. You say, oh, I'm having a heart attack. This is horrible. On the other hand, if you're finishing off a marathon, be a glorious experience suppose you're scared out of your wits well is it because there's an intruder in your house or is it because you're in a haunted house having a good time and so on and so forth our feelings physical and emotional aren't in themselves good or bad but thinking makes them so how we construe things makes a huge difference in in our experiences Mm,
1: fascinating in the acknowledgments, you thank someone for nearly persuading you that the whole idea of this book is deeply confused after you had finished writing it. Dare I ask what he said to nearly persuade you?
2: <laughs> yeah, this is my, my, my good friend, Stephen uh, Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> he said, my ex friend. Whenever I talk about him, uh, he doesn't want to be talked about. So, so. But uh, no, uh, uh, my good friend. And if you look at it at my book, I cite his research more than anybody else. He does these brilliant studies, these clever, brilliant studies. And he is a hedonist. He thinks my motivational pluralism is silly. He thinks in the end, all there is is pleasure, and all there's worth doing is maximizing pleasure. And it was. You know, I recommend everybody writing a book to get themselves a Dan Gilbert, some really smart person who thinks they're so wrong. And, um, and and I and I wrestle with his ideas through the book. And, you know, obviously, I'm not convinced. I think that that the desire for meaning and the desire for pleasure, the desire to be a good person, which we haven't spoken about, are genuinely different. They're different parts of the brain. They vary in different ways for different people. They compel us in different ways and they clash with one another. But a smart hedonist will always argue, well, you think you try to, you know, you think you try to make things fair because you care about fairness, but really what you want is the buzz that, you know, you get from doing a good thing or the applause that people give you. Mm. And, you know, you read the book, I, you see, I'm not convinced, but, uh, but it's, it's, it's always good to have such a, a sharp critic by your side.
1: Indeed, you argue in the book that a life well lived is more than a life of pleasure. It involves moral goodness and meaningful pursuits, um, as well as other things. So just tell me yes. more about it.
2: So in some way, this is, a not, this is not a psychological claim. It's a judgment claim. It's, you know, I can't say, oh, studies from my lab have shown you're making a big mistake. You just try to be happy. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It's fundamentally... A moral claim about how we should live. And I'll tell you one more story, uh, which is, which I think, which was intended to illustrate this point. It's by the philosopher Robert Nozick and Nozick imagines an experience machine. And now we're actually going back to the matrix a bit where they plug you into a machine and for the rest of your life, you just lie on a bed, the rest of your natural life, and you have the experience of the best life ever. Of, of success and love and purpose. Blah, blah. But of course, it's just all a dream. It's just plugged in. Uh, and he asks, would you want to get plugged into the machine? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, including him, including me, say no. And we say no because we don't just want to uh, have the experience of doing things. We want to do things. We say no because we want to make the world a better place. Not just think we made the world a better place. We say no because... If we plug ourselves into the machine, we're abandoning everybody we love. And I couldn't bear to do it, even though while I'm in the machine, of course, I never think of that. And to the extent you're pulled by this, to the extent you sort of say, say yeah, those other things matter too, you're also a motivational pluralist.
1: So, Paul, before I turn to the question, I want to come back to your own experience of being in a flow state. So you talked about training for a marathon. You write in the book about learning to code. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you realized you wanted to spend more of your life in the state of flow and why it made you happier and more fulfilled. Yeah, for me, the
2: catalyst was reading Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi's book, Flow. And I read this uh, late in my life, but I had this Tremendous influence on me, and he he describes flow. And he, sadly, he passed away a couple of weeks ago, actually, after his wonderful life. But he describes what a flow state is, and and the best definition for me is a flow state is between the, you're not bored, you're not anxious, you're in a sort of sweet spot, and you lose it's you're so immersed, you lose track of time. You forget to eat, you forget to pick up the kids, you're just totally lost in it. And in this book, he describes how trained athletes and dancers and musicians and artists and, and writers find themselves in flow states sometimes for hours and hours at a time. Well, some people never get into flow states because it's difficult to get into flow state. It's a lot easier to watch TV or check your email or go on Twitter. But, but, um but he made such a compelling case that, and I thought about it. And as I wrote this book, I thought about it more that I'm trying to get more of that into my life and and trying to, to, shift away from things oh that'll be fun that'll satisfy my immediate appetites and I'm thinking about things is it the right level of difficulty that i can lose myself in it and i think that sort of thing is extremely rewarding you know i'd like to people to buy my book but if you only buy
1: one book uh,
2: i'd buy flow i think flow's great
1: Okay, you need to buy you need to buy Paul's book. <laughs> there, there's a tab on your screen well, because yeah,
2: he's used the tab to buy, my book, but
1: still, <laughs> then buy Flo. and um, can never have too many books. But um, but really, um, you know, it's it's really a fantastic book and so many great stories and insights. And um, so I really do hope you pick up a copy of the book. And I'm going to now turn to uh, audience questions. And um, they're just coming in. I'll get to as many as I can. The first one is from Sarah, who asks. Do you think we live in a society that tells us to avoid pain to our detriment? People often say kids are too protected from pain.
2: I think, I think Sarah raises a good point. I mean, there are a lot of societies and they differ in all sorts of ways. But I think we tend to live in a society that kind of values hedonism and values pleasure and fun, maybe a bit too much. And one way this is manifested is in the biggest revolution in our lives which has happened over the last 10 20 years which is social media and streaming services and so on which is you go through your life with constant prodding of don't try don't work don't struggle stick your face next to the screen and pass out you know watch a show watch youtube videos and I'm sensitive because I'm very vulnerable to this. I can, you know, I'm having problems sleeping and I pick up my phone and I'm on Facebook and videos start showing up and then an hour has gone by and I've just lost it. You know, the way I like to think about it is um, that the, I think the CEO of Netflix once boasted that he wasn't competing with other streaming services. He's competing with, with sleep. And I think Facebook and Twitter and the like aren't competing with each other. They're competing with life. And, they are offering you a simple, easy pleasure and in highly incentivizing you to do it and While you know i don 't want to sound like somebody 's dad, but you should go outside and, and go for a run, you should lift some weights, read a Russian novel, you know um, have kids do do tough stuff so yeah, I do think in some way there 's a conspiracy against the right sort of suffering in our world.
1: Mm-hmm. The next questions come from uh, Raul, who asks, what is the function of pain from a psychological perspective? I've heard it's to tell the brain there's something wrong. Is that accurate?
2: That is accurate. That is accurate. So pain serves a clear evolutionary purpose, which is it does. Um, so, you know, you take you, you, an animal, human, touches a cactus. It hurts like hell. The arm is thro- the hand is throbbing in agony. And there's two things here. One is because it was bad, you don't touch the cactus anymore. A critical learning experience. And also now the hand is injured and it hurts. If you keep it safe, you let it heal. Without pain, people would be lost. You might think pain is bad. And a lot of pain, as in chronic pain, is unnecessary. And we do. And of course, there's an enormous industry trying to quell pains. We don't do us any good. But if you strip pain from somebody, they'd be in deep trouble. And we know that because there's unfortunate people who are born without the capacity to feel pain. And those people do very badly. They uh, they end up getting burnt and scarred. Uh, they don't treat their bodies properly. They don't protect limbs, right? Often they die quite young because of of, 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 of of the number of injuries they sustain. So on the whole, Darwin makes it that pleasure is what draws you to what you should do. Pain pulls you away from what you shouldn't do. And my book is about exceptions. My book is about cases where pain is supposed to be bad, but it can be it can be in the right circumstances. Good. But the but the evolutionary account given is, I think, precisely right. Mm.
1: Thank you. Next question is one thing I've always wondered. Is there a difference between happiness and fulfillment in your view?
2: People use the terms in all sorts of different ways. And so I'm not going to say oh absolutely, you know we've shown that there is cuz it depends you could use them that they mean the same thing. But maybe one way to answer this is I think there is very different notions that really worth keeping apart. And we could call one of them happiness and another one fulfillment. And happiness is basically how much fun you're having, how much pleasure you're having. You know, you're sitting, you're lying in a, in, a, in a nice swimming pool and it's sunny outside and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of napping. And, and when you get up, you have a pina colada and I say, how are you doing? I'm pretty happy, you say. But suppose you do this over and over again, and that's kind of your life. You might say, I'm pretty happy. I'm not very fulfilled. I'm not very satisfied. I think, I think fuf- happiness resonates more of the pleasure, fulfillment more with meaning and purpose. So you can be high in one and low in the other. You can also have, I was talking to a friend of mine last night, you know, let's have a life where you feel this is a valuable life, a purpose and meaning. Day to day, it kind of sucks. And, you know, I'm very interested in experience of raising children. And a lot of people with young children, particularly young children, or children with different disabilities, or teenagers, or I don't know, maybe, maybe old children, um, kind of find it hard. And, and are they happy? No, my kids are driving me nuts. I murder for a good night's sleep you know i wish i had some some better child care i wish i that I, I was just so dirty blah 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 blah. but are you fulfilled yes so you do get this difference
1: mm. next question coming in paul uh the question is sometimes we know we should embrace some pain but we're scared of being vulnerable how do we overcome that and uh asking for a friend was the last part
2: of that question See, for always <laughs> always asking for a friend um well, everybody has a sort of level of pain and suffering that's acceptable. I like scary movies. Sometimes I'll go to sometimes I'll scare the pants off me and I'll get get a pleasure from it. But if they were too scary, it would just be upsetting and really unpleasant. I got my level. You know, I kind of like to go for uh, a good run sometimes. Would I run an Ironman triathlon? No, it'd kill me. You know, so and so I think. Um, it's not always a matter of saying, Oh, you know, I'm a bit trepidatious, but I'm going to, I should jump in. How can you get us to jump in? Maybe you're reasonably cautious. I think people should sort of, and there's a sort of know thyself thing here, which is that even when it comes to all these pleasures, everything from scary movies to spicy foods to, to sadomasochistic sex, it's really good to know what your limits are. Everybody has different limits and different things they like. Even says something as simple as how hot do you want your bath? How spicy do you want your curry? And and, um, and it's not a matter of, oh, just hit the maximum. I'm sure it'll work out. Some people, it's too much. So so I guess the idea would be and I'm in the cautious sort is dip a toe in. Try it, then try to ratchet things up. You know, I don't know. Try Try the two-star chili before trying the three-star chili. And then see what you like. Find your sweet spot
1: that way. I think that's good advice when it comes to chilies in particular. Um, the next question is from, um, Tom in Derbyshire. Very interesting that the job market seems to be inverted in terms of meaning. Do you think this is something we can collectively change?
2: It's a really good question. And, and it actually, um, I mean, my, my answer is I don't know. I mean, the, the, what gets, the forces that cause some jobs to be priced and pay well are often very different from, from considerations of either the value of the job or the meaningfulness of the job and so on. In some way, it's not bad that meaningful jobs don't pay that well because they're meaningful. That's the good thing about it. You know, maybe you should give people a lot of money to, to, for jobs that are not meaningful because then they have the money and then they could get meaning some other way. There's the, the the issue of jobs and meaning is very urgent these days. There's something in the in the United States they're calling uh, the Great Resignation or the Great Quit. I don't know. Is is it there as well?
1: It is, yes.
2: And you know, a lot of people are not going back to work. And uh, a lot of this is because well, a lot of it because people's jobs are are unrewarding and unsatisfying. The the sociologist David Graeber call talks about bullshit jobs, which are jobs, and there's, sometimes they're sort of middle management jobs. Which just—they're doing nothing. You're just shuffling papers around. It's not even that they're terrible; they just provide no meaning because they have no impact on the world. And so, if if we could work to eliminate jobs that do no good, if we could work to properly, you know, make make rewarding jobs that that uh, that 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 are needed, and fix up some really gross. Uh, imbalances in what people are paid for. I think that that would be a good thing. I also think, by the way, that sometimes people get jobs wrong, and what they think is, oh, the job I want should be easy, well paid, high status, and easy. But it's a recipe for boredom. I think the idea of going for challenging jobs and jobs that push you is really valuable. And and I'll, I'll end on a kind of a Zen thing, which is there, there's a Zen idea. That any activity, any job could be made meaningful in the hands of the right person. Cleaning toilets, washing dishes and everything, uh, can, can be given meaning. And, and I, and I've seen this. I've seen people do jobs which other people view as menial and they think this is, this is important and, and they seek out the importance in it. And I've also seen the flip side. I'm a, you know, I'm a tenured professor and I think this job is just full of immense possibilities and opportunities. But in the last two years, I've had three friends quit. Tenured people. At top universities quit. And they say, this isn't doing anything for me. I'm deeply unsatisfied. And I want to something else. So, you're, you know, people are different in how they respond to different circumstances.
1: The next question starts off with thanks. Thanks, Paul. A great talk. The question is, how do we know that chosen suffering is going to lead to long-term pleasure?
2: We know it not so much from sort of specific laboratory studies or, or experiments, but from observing, observing the activities that people themselves engage in. So um, so we know, for instance, that there's a pleasure and a satisfaction to sustained effort. And, you know, everything from doing crossword puzzles. I like doing crossword puzzles. And I like the idea that I'm sort of struggling with crossword puzzles that I do it all the way to running marathons, to triathlons, to writing books, to opening a business That that people will tell you that what, what matters the most to them are things that involve struggle and difficulty. So it's something we see not so much in experimental laboratories, but played out in the real world. I mean, to put it another way, if you went up to somebody and said, you know, what gives you the most satisfaction and pleasure and joy? It's very likely it'll answer you with something that involves difficulty and work and struggle.
1: So the next question is, do you have any thoughts on drugs that induce pleasure like MDMA? Do you think these would be valuable to be explored more?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm enough of a motivational person. Pleasure is good. MDMA MDMA is is good. Um, You know, uh, a nice whiskey. I'm in Toronto now where marijuana is legalized and and it seems the whole city is in a cloud of pot. And I think these things are good as far as it goes if they are indulged in enough so much that they rob you of everything else in life. And there's sort of a cliche of the stoner on the sofa who the rest of his life, he's just smoking pot and getting high. Then I think it's tragic. But drugs that give you pleasure, as long as they have the right place in your life and putting aside any other side effects they have, that's all to the good. There's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with being happy. And then you also get to the case where and this, I know this wasn't a question, but you get to antidepressants and drugs that, that, uh, that are, are done to deal with clinical conditions. And there and I think that are very valuable. I don't think people can live. People find it very hard to do even meaningful, difficult things when they're depressed or anxious. So taking the drugs to pull you out and make you a more full person, I think, has tremendous value.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, the next question, Paul, there is a big mental health crisis among young men right now. Why do you think that is?
2: There are actually several different mental health crises dealing with different people. My answer to everything regarding mental health for the last two years is COVID. So, so the, the pandemic has had caused terrible disruptions and terrible effects on depression and anxiety. There's a lot of debate over, over um the extent to this, and where it happens, and who it happens to, but COVID has definitely taken its toll. There, there are other factors in the United States, but I'm not sure elsewhere. There are what uh, Angus Deaton calls a deaths of despair, and these are actually tend to be localized in men, but not young men. Men in their fifties and a bit older, who um, who have, seem to have an epidemic of suicide. A lot of it is related to opioid addiction. And then there's a the general fact, and I, this is not this is not recent. This has probably been a problem for as long as there's been people. But but young people often struggle with meaning and and and, they, and a and a lack of fulfillment. And I don't. I, I want to be sort of cautious here because I don't think the evidence is strong. This is a speculation, but I think for a lot of young people, and maybe young men, they feel kind of at a loss. They feel they don't have. They might have some degree of material wealth particularly in a good society, has some sort of welfare system, but their lives lack meaning. And, you know, the solution to this, one solution of this is to pick up a cause, hopefully a good cause, and these things give meaning. I I quote early in the book uh, Greta Thunberg, the the young climate activist. She had this tweet and said, basically, I can't remember it off my heart, but basically she said, said, I was just miserable at home doing nothing uh, without anything And then I I discovered this cause and it infused my life with meaning. And now I am transformed. And that is very, very typical.
1: Um, So the penultimate question for you is, are you someone who subscribes to the idea that the decline of religion has led to people losing meaning in their lives? And Sarah asked that.
2: Yes. Yes. I'm, I'll say this saying that uh, just before people think, whoa, where am I coming from, that I'm a secular atheist. I, I don't believe any of, any of this stuff. But I'm very interested in religion. And religion is plainly a source of meaning for many people. And this brings us back to unchosen suffering, where uh, as a secular atheist, if something bad happens to me, I just that, that's bad. Something bad happened to me. Uh, you know, my somebody I love dies. I lose my job. My house burns down. That just is, but religion provides narratives, and they may, I may say, "Well, God was testing me," or "Everything happens for a reason." I'm sure this will come out better in the end. And religion provides a lot of narratives to 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 fill your life with meaning. And I think that could have a huge a huge benefit for many people. I mean, one I said before that poor countries people have lives of less meaning up more meaning than rich countries. One reason for this is poor countries are more religious than rich countries. So, yeah, there's a lot to that claim.
1: Mm. And then the final question, uh, Paul, going back to fear of pain, i.e. not risking for fear of pain. There are many people who are incapable of loving out of fear of getting hurt. What then, aside from a good uh, psychologist, <laughs> which, would be your answer to that?
2: My answer is a good, is a good psychologist. I mean, and, and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why people are, are leery of relationships. And to some extent... It connects to what we're talking about here, which is meaning. I talked about having kids, but actually romantic relationships are a really good example of what is an end, a meaningful and I think hard pursuit. You know, one night stands flirting. The initial spark of a relationship could be nothing but pleasure and joy. But sustaining a relationship is fraught with risk and disappointment and struggle. You know, nobody who's been in a relation with somebody for a year has always had good times with them. And and I think, but I think that, and I'm not saying anything new here, that this is one of the most important pursuits we could have. There's a line from Sigmund Freud, where he's asked, what's the value now? It turns out he didn't actually say this, but it's a good line. He says, love and work. A healthy mind has solved the problems of love and work, where work refers to, a lot of what we're talking here is sustained activity and difficult projects and love is, is relationships with your, with your kids, with your, with your, your brothers and sisters, your friends and, and with romantic partners. And, and whoever wrote that, I mean, I, I don't have any more to say than finding good people to, good person to talk with to work you through this and get you prepared to go on that next step is indispensable and really important.
1: Mm-hmm. It's been absolutely fantastic, Paul. Before we uh, let you go, what would you like our audience to take away from your work on The Sweet Spot? What are the kinds of things you want them to, to go away and to think about? Perhaps they could dive into your debate with the hedonists. <laughs> yes. uh,
2: I, guess, I, guess a couple, I guess a couple of things. One thing would be um, to sort of think a little bit about the role of pain and suffering and difficulty and effort in a life well-lived. Maybe ask yourself if you don't, if you haven't chosen any of these things, you should give them a shot. And you know, the book has a lot of stories and examples of this. And then the other one is more theoretical, actually. I'm, you know, I'm a research psychologist. I've, it's nice. It's nice to try to help people and give advice and I don't resist the temptation, but I'm really interested in how the mind works and to take seriously the idea, uh, that humans are complicated, that, uh, we, we are very quick to denigrate. Ourselves say, oh, all we want is pleasure. All we only want is get pleasure, avoid pain. Simple as that. But it's not. It's much richer. It's the religious people have it more right than a lot of my psychologist colleagues. Um, we want many things. We want pleasure, sure, but we also want meaning. We want morality. Sometimes you want truth. Sometimes you want beauty. It's 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 a lot of things. Life is interesting. So that's it.
1: Great, great takeaways. And your book is absolutely fascinating. Um, Thank you so much. I mean, we, there's, we talked about a lot of uh, concepts, but there's so much more in the book, especially around stories and details and studies. I mean, pain, happiness, meaning. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm astounded at how much ground you've actually covered. And also I would just tell the audience, you can buy the book using the tab on your screen. It's very accessibly written um, and a real pleasure to read. So, a huge thanks uh, to Paul Bloom for spending the time with us to, uh, to share the insights from his book. And it's been just an absolutely fascinating hour. Um, So again, please go buy his book, the sweet spot. I urge you all to pick up a copy. You won't regret it. Um, And with that, I'm going to thank you all for joining us for this intelligence squared plus event.
2: Uh, mm, The first taste of rare bourbon. You finally got your hands on. That's nice.